We're going to be looking into chapter 7 of Revelation in just a moment. One of the things that I've discovered as a pastor and counseling, and I'm sure every single one of us have discovered it, sometimes what we perceive as reality is really a perception from a certain perspective that doesn't necessarily show the whole picture or it doesn't show even the truth. But look at this first slide that we have here. That we have here. There it is. It looks like a bad day for somebody. We see that picture and we're wondering, what were they doing on that cliff in the first place? And what happened? But then we get a second perspective. Doesn't look near so dangerous as they're laying on the ground and jumping backwards. If you look at them together, you can see that there is quite a distinction between the two. What really occurred? What is the truth? Go to the next slide. A bicyclist. Somehow or other, riding by this deep, deep, deep hole, drove into it, and fortunately for him, he grabbed something. I don't know how he's going to get out, but he's safe for the moment. But then there's another perspective. He's laying on the street, coming out of a tunnel. You put them together, and which is the truth? You put them together, there it is. So many things we see from a certain perspective, and as we're looking at the book of Revelation, it is so easy to get wrapped up in the judgment and wrath of God that we miss what the real point is. The book is called the Revelation. Revelation 1.1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ. We miss the revelation or the revealing of the grace and mercy of God if we get wrapped up in simply looking at the judgment of God. My message this morning is entitled, The Mercy and Grace in the Midst of Judgment. When you think about the book of Revelation, mercy and grace may not be the first two words that come to mind. Because there is so much judgment as God pours out his judgment and wrath on the world in the time of tribulation. And if you think about it, this isn't a quote original with me, but there's no one necessarily to attribute it to, but it's this. If you think about it, there is really no mercy unless there's judgment. Mercy means, basically, that we're not receiving what we deserve. So when there is judgment, mercy can be manifested. So really, when we look at the book of Revelation, we are going to see from today's study that we are seeing one of the most amazing outpourings of the mercy and grace of God that's ever taken place. It's tough to, tough to, to say something's greater than the cross, and there isn't. But boy, this is right up there as we look into this chapter. Where we left off, the sixth seal of the seven seals scroll had been opened. And in the sixth seal, we saw there was great earthquakes on all of the land, all over the earth. The sun becomes black. The moon becomes like blood. Stars of the sky fall onto the earth. The sky itself splits apart like a scroll is being opened. 
as you're going through these chapters in Revelation, it's like you're watching almost a, a crazy science fiction movie unfold because it's so hard to comprehend with our natural mind. But it's really coming someday in the tribulation. And it's easy to get to the place you think, who in the world could survive this? As a matter of fact, the last few words in chapter 6 of this, about this, uh, the sixth seal were these words, who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? We mentioned last week, nobody except for the grace of God could ever stand against what's taking place. So chapter 6 has been filled with action. Chapter 7, and this is one of the things that sometimes makes us hard when we're just reading through the book of Revelation. We kind of can get lost and wonder, what's this? Where are we going? What's going on? As I said last week, chapter 7 is what's called an interlude. It's like if you were watching a play. If what's unfolding in Revelation were a play taking place on the stage, this is like we're taking a break. This is kind of like an intermission, only it's not an intermission where you go get popcorn. It's an intermission. It's called, in in literary writing, it's called a parenthesis. Now, we all know what parentheses are when you're writing, those little curved lines that we stick in the middle of a sentence. And if something's in parentheses in the middle of a sentence, it could be a phrase. It might only be a word. In this case, it's a whole chapter. But what's put in parentheses isn't absolutely necessary for the story that you're reading, but it benefits us as the reader. It gives us greater understanding. So what we're experiencing here when we get to chapter 7, it's like, okay, church, take a deep breath. In just a moment here, I'm going to, there's an interlude, and and God is going to show John something that helps explain what's taking place through the whole time frame of the tribulation. So this chapter 7 doesn't follow sequentially what's been taking place in terms of events. It does follow sequentially, however, as to what God is revealing to John to write down for us. And that's where we sometimes get confused. It's not chronologically in terms of events. It's like he's getting to step back just a little bit and God's showing him more and therefore he's showing us more of what is taking place throughout Revelation. And what we're going to see is taking place throughout Revelation is an amazing display in this chapter of God's grace and God's mercy. So I'm going to read a few verses at a time, and we're going to look at chapter 7. I'm going to read just the first three verses. After this, after what? After the sixth seal, after God had revealed to him the sixth seal, it's like all of a sudden John is getting a little bit different vision to share. And so, so after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. What's this wind stuff? Wind is the judgment of God that's coming. The four corners of the earth is like saying it's going to be north, south, east, and west. It's going to cover the earth. But he's saying we're going to hold back that judgment. And it says, I saw another angel ascending. Four angels holding back this judgment. The fifth angel comes. And it seems to be that this angel has a little different authority because it says another angel ascending from the rising of the sun having the seal of the living God. 
And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and to harm the sea. In other words, they were sent out to bring judgment upon the earth. And he says, don't. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. We have a break in his vision. The four angels holding back the judgment of God. I personally believe, and remember, when I'm telling you something that I personally believe, that means there are other opinions out there. I personally believe this is taking place, if we were looking at it chronologically, right after the rapture of the church in Revelation 4. And before the first seal has hardly been broken. Others believe that it is actually taking place after the sixth seal between the sixth and seventh. But whenever it's taking place, and as we go through, you'll you'll probably see why I think it's covering the whole spectrum of tribulation. The fifth angel, having the seal of God, tells them, don't start yet. Don't start bringing the judgment, the destruction. Don't start releasing the wrath of God yet. In Revelation 14, seven chapters later, in what will be another interlude, I'm going to read part of two verses, and I'll come back to the, the first part of the verses, but in Revelation 14, 1, I just want you to focus right now on the very last phrase because it's in reference to these people that the angel's saying, wait, we've got to do something with some of these people before you pour it out. And it says they are going to be marked. They are going to have his name and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. They are going to have the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father written on their foreheads whoever this group is that's being selected by God. And then if you look at the end of verse 4, it says, These have been purchased from among the men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. The first fruits of the tribulation are going to be this group of people. These are going to be the first people that are going to get saved and accept Jesus Christ during the tribulation. Some of you may not even know that there were going to be people saved during the tribulation. I'll tell you now, and I'm going to repeat it later, the greatest revival in the history of planet Earth is going to take place during the tribulation. It's going to be amazing. Glad I'm not going to be there, but it's going to be amazing. Who is this group of people? As we continue reading in verse 4, it says... Remember verse 3, until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And we see in chapter 14, reference to them, they're going to have the name of God, the name of the Lamb on their forehead. What that is exactly, I have no idea. But I know it's going to be a name of God and the name of the Lamb. And if you think about it, in the tribulation, you're going to walk around with this mark saying that you belong to God. Sounds a little bit scary to me. And it's also interesting to think that if you're aware of what takes place at the end times, there's something called the mark of the beast. If you've heard of the mark of the beast, we commonly refer to it as 666. If you don't take the mark of the beast, you can't buy or you can't sell or you are in big trouble. 
because they're going to hate the church. The Antichrist is going to hate the church. The church is going to be persecuted. If you're a Christian, you're going to be murdered. You're going to be killed if you accept Christ. And here yet we have this group of people. And starting in verse 4 it says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. 144,000. If you're not familiar with the tribes, they were the 12 tribes of Israel. So all of these 144,000 are Jewish. God is preparing to fulfill some of his promises to the Jewish people, his people where it's going to pour out his spirit on his people. So there's 144,000 wearing the mark on their forehead that they have been sealed by God for a special mission, a special task that they are to accomplish. Now, I've got to tell you, there's a lot of speculation about who the 144,000 are. I think it's pretty clear who they are because it tells us 12,000 from all 12 tribes. But some of you may be aware, the Jehovah Witnesses believe that the 144,000 are the 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses. They don't talk about that as much anymore because there's now more than 244,000 Jehovah Witnesses. I'd hate to be 144,001. The Mormon Church believes that it's the 144,000 of the Mormon elders. Tough luck for the rest, I guess. Some people believe that the number is just symbolic. It's not supposed to be interpreted as a specific number, 144,000. It's supposed to be a picture of God people, in other words, the number of Jews that are going to get saved. Or some take it even further and say that the 144,000 is just a number, this big number that represents the church that will be saved. But in my mind, if we don't take it literally when it tells us there's going to be this many from each of the 12 tribes, and it's going to total 144,000, there is no, imag- there's no end to what you can do with your imagination. You can make them be whoever you want them to be. So I think it's, in my mind, clear. Now, another reason people debate whether they're really from the 12 tribes is because of the way the list is put together. And some of us wouldn't even catch this when we read through the list. But they point out things to us like, in Jewish times, the oldest son was always mentioned first. Well, in this list, Judah is put before Reuben, and Reuben was the oldest son. Well, then they start speculating, well, why isn't Reuben first? Well, maybe it's because he was very sinful and the Reubenites were not good people. Maybe it's because Judah is from the line that Jesus came from. Maybe, 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 maybe. We don't know why. And it goes on further, and it says... The, the tribe of Dan isn't even listed, and the Levites are put in. And the Levites were the priests, and if you remember when the land was split up, they didn't get an inheritance. And they, I guess they assumed that when 
Jesus comes back and the Levites don't get one then either or something. I don't, I don't know. It makes no sense to me. And as you look at it even a little bit further, when we look at this, Joseph, you may remember the story. Joseph, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, got his portion. Manasseh's listed, Ephraim's left out, but Joseph is put in. So they make a really big deal in their theology that because the list doesn't look exactly like they think it should, that it must mean something else. Well, the reality is, if you would go through the Old Testament, and every place that you found a list of the 12 tribes, you're going to find there are 19 different orders of the list in the Old Testament, depending on the situation. So I don't understand and know why the list looks like it does, but I don't think it's all that significant. Or at least, I don't understand why it's all that significant. But that doesn't change the fact that I believe God is very clear in this vision that there's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes to equal 144,000. And they're called to a special task. And, and what that, that mark on them is going to make them stand out during the tribulation. You know, I mean, you're not going to be able to hide the fact that you're a follower of Jesus and they're trying to kill anybody and everybody. You don't take the mark, it's a death sentence. If you don't take the mark of the beast, it's a death sentence. And these guys are going to be walking around with the mark of God on their forehead. And they are going to be protected. It's the seal of God. It's like it's a seal of protection. And they are going to go through the entire tribulation without being harmed. And you know how I know that? The Bible tells us that. If you read in Revelation 14.1, it says this. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. And if you look at the context of chapter 14, you know when that's being talked about? What's being talked about? Jesus has returned and set up his millennial kingdom. And all 144,000 are there. Now 143,999. He didn't lose any. Through the whole time, the seal of God on them, protecting them during the most horrible time ever on earth, planet earth. Their special task, I believe, is made clear that they are called to evangelize the world. There's two scriptures. I want to go back to 14.1 and 14.4 that I just glossed over before to give us a little bit more of a picture of them. In 14.1 was the lamb and the 144,000 on the Mount Zion. And then the, verse 4 is a little bit strange when you read it. These are the ones who have not been defiled by women. In other words, they're virgins. They have not been defiled by women. They have kept themselves chaste or righteous without fault. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from the men as the first fruits. I believe, I believe, it's a symbolic thing. They maybe were truly virgins, but I believe it's a picture for us that these were guys who were sold out to the bridegroom. They were sold out to Jesus. They were devoted to Christ and his purpose and his mission. These 144,000 were carefully selected by God. You know, there's one other thing that I think is kind of humorous almost, 
and the reasons why people might say that this 144,000 isn't literally who I think the Bible says they are. And they'll say this, because the 12 tribes of Israel have been so dispersed throughout the world over all these years, there's even some of the missing tribes, you know, we can read stories about them. Therefore, we don't know who the 12 tribes are, we don't know where they are. As a matter of fact, if I was a Jewish person standing before you today, I couldn't probably tell you what tribe I came from. Therefore, there's no way that they can identify the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. But then I remember that God knows the number of hairs on my head and the grains of sand on the seashore, and I think he can probably figure out from what tribe they're all from. So you can see sometimes we have to go through such crazy hoops and let our imagination run wild to change what seems to be pretty literal. And it's hard in Revelation, and I understand that, because there is so much symbolism. So sometimes you really got to read it carefully and put it together in context as best we can to see what's being symbolic, what's being real. And sometimes we don't know. Sometimes there are answers we don't have revelation of yet in the book of Revelation. I believe the special task is to be evangelists. These 144,000. And some people will say they'll acknowledge there are 144,000 there that they're from the tribes of Judah or tribes of Israel. And then they'll say they're going to go out and be the missionaries or the evangelists to the Jewish people only. Again, you've got to just completely ignore scripture to take that position. These 144,000, if I look at verses 9 and 10, after these things, so I believe some people think the group that's going to be talked about here is the same group as the 144,000. I think that they're not for a number of reasons that we'll see. But I think here we see in God's vision that God was giving him, it's like there was a break. The focus was on the 144,000 that were being sealed and tasked for this special job of evangelizing the world. And I believe now we start to see the results of their ministry. Verse 10, or 9 I mean. After these things, I looked... And behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hand, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's this multitude of people standing before the throne. They're going to be saved out of the tribulation, during the tribulation. I believe, I personally believe, probably all of them are martyred, but maybe not all. But many, many, many of them are going to be killed for their faith during the tribulation. Can you imagine these 144,000, the name of God on their forehead, they're sealed and protected, and they're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ And if you decide to accept it, you're marked for death. The Antichrist wants all of them killed. So who is this multitude? Verse 13 of Revelation chapter 7. It's like in this verse here, it again can be a little confusing to you because the verse starts out like John just asked a question to one of the elders. But it doesn't tell us he asked a question. But look at how it starts. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, 
Who are they? And from where have they came? So I, I, I would assume John asked that question. Maybe the angel just had this revelation and he spoke it for him, but it's a rhetorical question. The angel is speaking, or the elder is speaking this question, and now he's going to give the answer. Who are they? Where did they come from? And it says in verse 14, this is John speaking, and he says, I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So if you happen to be one who didn't know or didn't believe that anybody gets saved during the tribulation, they get saved during the tribulation. They come out of the tribulation. How do they come through the tribulation? I believe most of them die during the tribulation physically, and they're in in heaven with their spirits. But they come out. And how do they come out? What gets them out? How How do they get from being an unbeliever when the tribulation starts to now the scene he is seeing in heaven and they're all, there's multitude before the throne of God. And he tells them exactly, there's only one way. They have been washed, their garments have washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The same way that we get saved and get sealed today. There's no other way except through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only, only way. And as I said earlier, I believe this is going to be the greatest revival in the history of the world. Multitudes upon multitudes. Now, having said all of that, I want to make clear what I believe about a second chance for those of us that might reject Christ now. I don't believe you get one. If the tribulation, the rapture started today and you were left behind and the tribulation started tomorrow, you don't get a second chance if you've heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Why do I think that? Because the scripture tells us that. I believe clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians is all about the end times and the return of Christ. You've got to take it in that context. That's what's being talked about. And read what it says, starting in verse 8. The lawless one. Who's the lawless one? The Antichrist, Satan, the lawless one. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. In other words, when Christ comes back, the final defeat of Satan will take place. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, for this reason, for what reason? Because they would not receive the truth. Okay? It's right before it. For this reason, for this reason what? For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. I believe that is telling us clearly. If 
anyone who has heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that salvation comes through what Jesus did, dying on a cross for our sins as a sinless sacrifice, the Lamb of God, and they have rejected that truth, and if they happen to still be alive when the tribulation starts, they are going to have a delusion from God put upon them that they will not believe the truth no matter what. And they will go through the tribulation, and when the end comes, they will spend eternity in hell. There's no second chance. I believe the ones that get saved in the, in the book of Revelation and during the tribulation are those that have never heard the clear gospel of Jesus Christ. And a thought may be something like this. Oh, wait a minute. In this day and age, there's no excuse for having never heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And you're right. There is no excuse. But there are multitudes that have never heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ. There are a number of churches in our own nation where you could be born, raised, and sit in that church the whole life and never once hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly presented. They will stress salvation by doing this or by doing that or by doing this or by doing that, and doing those things will do nothing for you. If they have not heard the gospel ever, they may get saved in the tribulation. Praise God. But if they have heard the clear gospel and rejected it, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about the end times, if they have rejected it, God is going to put this delusion on them that no matter how clear the gospel may be laid out by these 144,000, they won't believe it. They won't believe it. What do we do with that? It should motivate us like crazy to be sharing the good news with people that they might accept Christ, that they might hear the true gospel. There are so many people, we sometimes think the only one that haven't heard about Jesus must be over there in Africa in a forest somewhere, in a jungle, isolated from the rest of the world. That is not true. There are neighbors that we might know and have, people we work with, that have never heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess who's supposed to tell them in this age of the church? The church. Us. We're supposed to tell them. What did Jesus say before he ascended? Go into all the world and make disciples. The church. That's our job. Which... There's another thing that makes me believe the rapture takes place before the tribulation for some of you who disagree with me. Throw one more little tidbit out there. Why in the world would God need another special group if the church was still on the earth? I don't believe he would. He needed a special group like these 144,000 because the church was gone. But in God's grace, he always provides a remnant. And in his grace and mercy, he seals 144,000 to become believers in Jesus Christ. How? I believe by the same way you and I got saved. The Holy Spirit working in us. We read about the restraint of the Holy Spirit being removed. I believe the restraint will be removed. But that doesn't mean he's gone. He's going to be working and active. And it might be a motivation to believe when... A whole bunch of people disappear one day just like that. There will probably still be lots of Bibles laying around, videos, audios, 
that all of a sudden they're going to get it. They're going to hear it. And with what's taking place, multitudes are going to believe it. Unless you've rejected Christ before the tribulation. And for these people, it goes on in verse 15 through 17. I think I'll go ahead and read those quickly. The blessings for these that come out of the tribulation. And when I read these, it's just, it, you, we can't hardly picture what the fullness of the blessing is, and there are blessings available to all of us that have been sealed by God already. For this reason, they're before the throne of God. For what reason? Because they've accepted Christ and been washed by the blood. And it says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God. They are in the presence of God. They are in the presence of God. The moment they are martyred, the moment they are killed, they're in the presence of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. They have the pleasure, the great joy of serving the living God in heaven. And then it says, he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. You may read then and go, huh? His tabernacle represented, represents his presence. If you remember in the Old Testament, the tabernacle went before them, and the, the tabernacle was where they went to experience the presence of God. God. It's as if God is saying, my protection, my presence, I'm going to cover you with my presence, sheltering you with my presence in heaven. They shall know, there shall be no hunger, neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. In other words, all of those things that we might suffer with on here, here on earth are gone. No more. And he goes on, and he doesn't even stop there. He says, for the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd. What's a shepherd do? The shepherd cares for his flock. You're going to be in presence of the lamb of God. And he shall guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. The blessings upon those that come out of the tribulation. And they're the blessings that we would experience or we will experience as those who accept Christ and are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And I know some people in here probably, and I know you'll run into people who would say this, it doesn't seem fair for those that are going to have a delusion put on them by God that they can't accept Christ during the tribulation. How fair would it be to all those unbelievers who have died before the tribulation begins, who don't get a second chance. One of the biggest things that I want you to take away from this today is a picture of God's mercy and his grace during the most horrible, violent time on planet Earth. We see a revelation of Jesus' grace and his mercy. The ceiling of the 144,000 is amazing. But we need to understand this. You and I, if we've accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have already been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The scripture is clear that we have been sealed. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, has also, have also believed, and you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This is just one more reason why I believe once you truly accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are sealed 
by the Holy Spirit. And you will not have to go through the tribulation at all, according to the way I believe, according to what I believe Revelation tells us. So the question, there's two of them. And I close with these two questions. One, the obvious one, are you sealed? In other words, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? The moment you do, the Holy Spirit enters your life and you are sealed from the wrath of God, the destruction that will come, and all the promises of heaven and all its glory belong to you. Second question is this. Do you live your life as one who's sealed? In the tribulation, they're going to have the name of the Lamb and the Father on their forehead. Everybody's going to know who's sealed. Everybody. Everybody should know that we've been sealed by the life we live. That's the challenge that we have for us today. If we have been sealed, do we live our lives like we've been sealed? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I praise you and I thank you for the greater revelation that we can receive of who Jesus Christ is, God, that we see a God so merciful, so loving, so willing to pour out his grace that even during the time of where you're pouring out your wrath, your mercy and grace are overwhelming. I pray you would help us to continue to understand as we read your word, that you would continue to give us greater revelation, greater understanding. God, I pray that anything that I might say that I believe, God, if it's not true, that it wouldn't impact anybody that hears my words. God, I pray that you would bless each one as we go our separate ways today. I pray, God, that you would bless the food that we are about to eat, that the youth have been preparing for us. God, I pray, praise you and thank you for the, the youth's willingness to serve and their desire to go on these trips that they may know you better. And I thank you for the opportunity we have to be a part of that through our generous giving. Father, in all these things, we give you the praise and the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.